Welcome to Into the Garden with Leslie here on News Radio WINA. This show is sponsored by Dos Amigos Landscaping. I am Leslie Harris, and thank you for giving a listen. Our plant of the week is known by an inaccurate botanical name. We'll be chatting with Helen Zakos, who is going to help us understand more about using plants in our own yard to get some new tastes for your dinner plate or maybe your cocktail. And lastly, our playlist will include what you might be doing in the garden this week. Thanks for all of the well wishes about my sprained foot. It is healing up very nicely because I have been a very good girl I have. I was finally back in the garden after that stupid long cold, and I was having so much fun last Saturday getting up, getting down, hands and knees. I used to crouch more, but um, yeah, my knees tell me that getting up and down is better. Anyway, the foot just twisted under me, very sharp pain, no walking possible for a few days. Shuffling now, all good, and I appreciate all the good juju that people have sent. Besides my shameless plea for sympathy, you might also have seen that I was looking all glam on Instagram this week because I was on the Janet Maybeck blog. She posts a really fun blog about gardeners. Um, I think she has a beautiful gardener herself, and she makes jewelry, and it is gorgeous. I was wearing cicada wing earrings, but she has leaves and oysters and birds and acorns and fruits and veg and all sorts of things, and of course, flowers that she's made jewelry out of. I'll put a link to her site in the show notes because she really has gorgeous and fun pieces. Hey, if you hear a buzz in the background, it is um, <clears throat> neighbors blowing leaves, and sorry about that. I must press on. <sighs> but back to gorgeous and fun things, unlike leaf blowers, um, and perhaps a little bit mysterious, our plant of the week is the hippiastrum. But nobody calls it that. Everybody calls it the amaryllis. So what is up with that? One is not easier to pronounce or spell than the other. Well, the answer to the riddle is that the amaryllis is from South Africa, and it is one of those rare plants with only one genus in the species. There just aren't that many plants like that. Like if you talk about salvia, that's a genus with 900 species, and of course a million more cultivars within those species. Hydrangeas, there are 23 of those. And I can only name six off the top of my head. That kind of bothers me. I got to, I must explore all those other types that I don't have any idea about. A genus with only one species, it's rare. It's called monotypic. Um, apparently, the aardvark is one of those. That makes sense to me. And botanically speaking, the ginkgo tree is also one of those. Now, mind you, the next level down from species, so a cultivar, well, they're starting to make many cultivars of the ginkgo tree. In fact, there's one that's like columnar. So that is like either man-made or cultivated in nature to be a specific cultivar of that species. But still, when you're talking about the ginkgo tree, it's only from that one species of that genus, monotypic. I'm sure I've totally fuddled you now. I've even fuddled myself. Let us move on. My personal theories on why amaryllis won out as the common name to refer to these bulbs. Oh, you see, the hippiastrum is a genus with lots of species, and they come from America, Central America and that sort of thing. Anyway, my theories on why we say amaryllis, well, A comes before H in the alphabet. Simple. And also, both plants are in the amaryllis family, and we like to celebrate family at this time of year. So it just makes sense. I just made those up. I hope that they help you understand something that you never even suspected needed an explanation. You're welcome. So the plant of the week is the amaryllis, but chances are pretty darn good that the beautiful, huge trumpet-like flowers that grow on top of the juicy, sturdy green stalk at this time of year is actually, yes, a hippiastrum. So not very important. But let's talk about the flowers. The bulbs are huge. I mean, we're talking about as big as a softball, some of them. And just like any bulb that you buy, remember Tim Shipper and I were talking last week about the leap of faith. You buy this brown, scaly golf ball, you dig a hole, 
you get a flower months later. It's like, boy, you better believe. But it's got all the goodness already in it. Some lovely nurseryman has already done all the work for you. All the chlorophyll from its last cycle of growth is tucked in there. And all you have to do is supply it with a bit of earth or even water for its roots and then just let it grow. But are you tracking the wax ones? You can't see the the scaly softball thing because it's covered up with wax, usually red at this time of year. It's kind of creepy, kind of cool. It's like the cyborg of Christmas plants, part flower, part Yankee candle. Pretty weird. Amaryllis come in reds, whites, pinks, salmons, and all of the other colors that can merge with white. Picotty types are particularly popular. That means a light color petal with an edge that has a dark color. If you've bought or if you've been gifted a bulb, follow the directions to get it to bloom, but recalibrate your expectations if all you have is a bulb right now. I'm recording this on December 16th, and they take three to four weeks to bloom from bulb stage. I know I said that Mother Nature or a nurseryman has tucked in all the food, but they're going to bloom faster with decent light from your windows. Once it has bloomed, people always want to know how to keep it and get it to bloom again because they're not inexpensive. If you have been able to do that, I applaud you. If you have not or are curious about how to, let me say this about that. Number one, there are millions of sources online with helpful directions. Number two, not once has it ever worked for me. Number three, I used to have feelings of inadequacy about that. And number four, I'm totally over it and I would much rather shop again next year. But that's just me. If you want to give it a go, go do it. And good luck to you. These are beautiful plants and they do make good gifts. So shop away. And they don't have to be in bloom at Christmas. I mean, winter's kind of long. January and February, not our most vibrant months. So even if it's not going to bloom in time for Christmas, you should get some. And in fact, I'm going to put a link in the show notes on lhgardens.com exactly where you can get some that I picked out at my Amazon shop. I picked out only the prettiest ones, but guess what? I don't love red, so you won't see any of those. But there are some gorgeous double ones, a white one with faint stripes like a strie of red. It's called nymph. And the beautiful apple blossom, which is actually pretty popular and pretty common. Well, uncommonly beautiful, but very popular. Coming up, we'll be talking with Ellen Zakos, the backyard forager, about how to find food in your garden that you didn't even know was there. But you must go about it very, very carefully. This is Into the Garden with Leslie on News Radio WINA, kindly delivered by Dos Amigos Landscaping and Holistic Pest Solutions. Welcome back to Into the Garden with Leslie on News Radio WINA. We're chatting with Ellen Zakos about foraging for food in your own yard, which is a topic that I really have no idea about. So we're going to start at the bottom, bottom, bottom of the barrel. Ellen knows everything about it. She is literally the backyard forager.com, her website. We're going to get to know about that. Thank you so much for joining us and teaching us, Ellen. My pleasure. And I wouldn't say I know everything, but whatever I know, I will share with you. (laughs) That's fantastic. So I've always been interested in food. It's very close to my heart. I'm definitely, I'm not a great cook, but I'm definitely interested in good food. Why would I go to look for it in my backyard? Please explain. Because you cannot buy the flavors that are in your backyard. I call them unbuyable flavors because the only way to get them is to go out and pick them for yourself, whether it's in your backyard or you're hiking in a field or the woods or the beach. The only way to get these flavors, and they are wonderful flavors, 
is to pick them for yourself. You cannot buy them. You cannot buy them. Okay, that's a great- well, You could buy, you know, you, if you knew a forager who had some extra acorn flour, you might be able to convince them to sell it to you. But chances are they worked so hard to get and make that acorn flour, the price is going to be more than you'd want to pay. <laughs> so you might want to learn how to make your own acorn yes. flour. Yes, exactly. All right, well, let's just, I mean, we're going to go much deeper on the subject, but just as an aside right now, why mm. would I want to use acorn flour? What's the, can you describe the flavor? Uh, yes. And I can also say, especially these days when more and more people are noticing gluten sensitivities, acorn flour, gluten-free, wonderful, wonderful. It's also very delicious and has a rich, deep flavor uh, that if you use it in muffins, in cakes, in breads, in pancakes, it just brings something to the table that you don't get from a all-purpose flour. And, and here's the thing, you know, everybody always says, well, what does it taste like? Well, it's very hard to describe a flavor, a new flavor. If I said to you, well, what does chicken taste like? What, oh, what would you say? It tastes like snake meat. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, but you would not say that. No, I, I know you right. wouldn't. You're messing with me now, Leslie. Okay. <laughs> but the point is, um, these are flavors that you need to experience. I can do my best. I can tell you that acorn flour is even richer than whole wheat flour. It's not as spicy as rye flour, but, but that doesn't really tell you what it tastes like. You have to experience the flavor yourself. Okay. So that really led us to, you know, forget the acorn flour, you know, you just really need to experience this, but how, well, why would one get started? But how did you get started? Uh, my story, I, I need to make up a better story because <laughs> I don't think my story is very interesting, but this is the, this is how I got started. So for many years, I was a uh, gardener in New York city. I ran a company. It was a design build maintenance company, mostly rooftop gardens, some brownstone backyards. And I did a few in Westchester. And one day I was there in Westchester on my lunch break. And I had had nothing in the refrigerator except white bread, mayonnaise, and American cheese. So I had a very boring sandwich. Yeah, yeah. very boring. And But but my friend and crew member who was working for me, um, Leda Meredith, was a forager. And she reached over and grabbed a couple of leaves of garlic mustard and said, here, put this in your sandwich. It'll make it better. <laughs> I was like, really? Okay. And I did. And she was so right. I mean, the flavor just exploded in my mouth, turned that sandwich from boring to wow. And I was hooked because here was something that most people wanted to get rid of because it was a noxious weed. And it is, let's face it, garlic mustard is a noxious weed, but it was free. It was delicious. And I also felt like I knew a secret. <laughs> All of a Very sudden, I know powerful. something that not Very everybody powerful. knows. Yeah. yeah. That was, that's how I got started. That's all it took a little bit of garlic mustard. And I was hooked. Okay. So here's my problem with that. So you're sitting with the American cheese sandwich, which is mm -hmm. by the way, I, I feel like that's what I had for lunch almost every day in my life, except for when we got peanut butter and jelly, which was so <laughs> um, So you've got the sandwich in your hand, your, your crew member reaches down for that garlic mustard. Are you at a place that may or may not have had pesticides applied? No, we're in a garden that I took that one of my clients gardens. So I knew exactly what has been sprayed or not sprayed. Okay, because that's that, a concern. That's a, that right? is, if, if you want to talk about the safety of foraging, that's one of the first things that I always emphasize. And that is you must harvest from an area that you know is safe. And if that's your own backyard, it's a great place to get started because you know what you have sprayed or not sprayed on all of the plants in your garden, whether it's 
fertilizers, insecticides, herbicides. If it's your garden, you know. And this was not my garden, but it was a garden that I cared for for years. So I did know. Okay. And so then, so you start your journey with your little American cheese sandwich and man. And then you probably learn everything about the East Coast. Uh, Then you go to New Mexico. Is it like, is it twice as much? Are there all things? Did you have to relearn everything? I I had to relearn a lot and it's not twice as much. It's half as much. Where I lived in New York and in Pennsylvania, we could count on 44, 45 inches of rain a year. In Santa Fe, it's about 14. So so there, um, it's the high desert and we, we have winter, it's 35 degrees this morning, but, um, but there's not a lot of moisture and guess what? Plants need moisture. So, um, the pickings are much slimmer, but there's still a lot of the same plants. The native oaks give tiny little acorns, but if you go to the Lowe's parking lot, <laughs> the acorns, I'm not kidding. The oaks they planted in the Lowe's parking lot give a great acorn crop. And here's the thing that's cool about that. Uh, because they're not native to this area, we don't get the, um, excuse me for saying maggots that often inhabit acorns where they grow in their native range. So they're great. They're clean acorns, really good to harvest. Loads of crab apples, lots of early spring greens, whether it's dandelions or dock or mustard greens, there's plenty of lamb's quarters. Um, we get currants, Oh, and there's also good mushrooms out here. There's very good mushrooms out here. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we don't get the wide range of things that I was used to getting um, back east. I do occasionally find milkweed. I've never found pokeweed out here. Never. It just doesn't grow here. One of my favorites, spice bush, which can grow for you, just doesn't grow this far west. The soil isn't right for it. So I've had to learn a lot of new plants and I'm still learning. Wow. We're talking with Ellen Zakos, the backyard forager about foraging for food in your own yard. Um, now, so we, we talked about how you got started. How would you recommend somebody listening to this podcast who's like, wait, I'm hungry. I like food. How do I start? What would you recommend? I, I recommend a multi-pronged approach. The first thing I did after Leda put that garlic mustard in my sandwich was go online and see what I could find. And there's a lot of groups out there online. There are Facebook groups. There are local groups. You can find these online, join them. The local groups will often have outings or potlucks, meet other people that do what you want to learn. And we will share our knowledge with you. Um, I also suggest you read everything you can get your hands on. And I think to my mind, the best books that are out there are by Sam Thayer, who has written three different uh, books about foraging. His most recent one, I think, is something like 36 Incredible Plants That Will Change Your Life. But Sam Thayer, excellent writer, solid information, and he'll make you laugh along the way with his stories. He, he's wonderful. And, and also, you should look for these festivals that happen all over the country. Uh, every year, I teach in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, at the Midwest Wild Harvest Festival. It's a wonderful gathering with lots of classes to choose from and a great place to meet people who share, you know, I tell people I'm a forager and they they think I'm either a dumpster diver or crazy. (laughs) But when you go to one of these festivals, people don't look at you like you're crazy. They look at you like, yeah, that's what I do too. (laughs) That's awesome. And I'm sure that the dumpster divers also unite and feel good about themselves and perhaps they do their their activities. No, but I'm not comparing you to dumpster diving, but it is so 
daunting to think about. I mean, it's fascinating to me if the fact that I might be surrounded by food and not taking advantage of it. Um, mm-hmm. The danger thing is a danger thing. And so you need to learn before you eat. Yes. Um, and then you, your website is incredibly, I was strolling through it this morning and it's incredibly informative. Plus you even offer courses. Tell us about those. I do. Um, everything on my website is is there for the taking. It's free and there's recipes and there's plant profiles. And I, I hope people will go there for information. I feel really confident that it's good information and will help you forage safely and then cook wonderful things with what you foraged because it's very sad to go to all that trouble and bring home a wild harvest and then not know what to do with it. My courses, I have two courses. Well, I have one freebie up there that's just a really general introduction which you might just try to see if you're interested. And then I have a large course that's on wild spices, which is really fun. And I think spices, using wild spices, it's a great way to introduce yourself to some of these wild flavors because you can use a tried and true recipe that you really like and then just make a simple substitution. So instead of oregano, you might use bee balm. Instead of tarragon, you might use melilote. Some people call it sweet clover. You maybe have bought sumac at a really good spice store. Well, you can make your own and I will show you how. Um, so the spice course is, it's 13 plants with videos for each one and two recipe cards for each one. It's got a lot of information in there. And then I have, I have a cocktail course. I wrote a book on cocktails. So um, what's, the name of, what's the name of the book? Uh, the Wild Crafted Cocktail. The Wild Crafted Cocktail. I have actually seen that. Okay. So what's your fave? What's your, what, name two or three favorites of yours. Oh, for, for cocktails? Yes. Mm. Well, okay. I will tell you, choke cherries grow all across the country and it's the same. It's Prunus virginiana grows from the East coast to the West coast and every place in between. And it's very popular in Santa Fe as a landscape tree. And it also has a long history of uh, being used by native peoples, although perhaps not in this cocktail, but uh, so, so that's a fruit that I find a lot. Okay. And, and there is an old recipe George Washington took credit for it, but I have it on good authority that it was really Martha Washington's recipe uh, for cherry bounce, which was an alcohol that was made by infusing cherries and sugar in either brandy or rye or vodka, whatever you like. So I make a choke cherry bounce, which is choke cherries and rye liquor and just a little bit of sugar infused in the in the rye for uh, three months. And then you strain off the fruit. And you have this wonderful spirit that's infused with the fruit. And I drink that either just over ice or maybe with a little bit of ginger ale. It's it's a superb flavor. And then I take the fruit, which has got all this rye alcohol in it now, and I make a jam from it. So oh um, it's not wasted. You're not wasting anything. Well, the seeds. I'm wasting the seeds. And I could use the seeds for something because... If you crack the seeds open and you have to roast them because they have a little bit of cyanide in there, as many seeds do, you know, apple seeds do too, but we swallow them whole. And if the coat isn't broken, it's perfectly safe. But if you crack the seeds open, you need to roast them or expose them to heat to make them safe. And um, in the Middle East, some cherry pits are used in a spice called, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, maleb. So I, but that's just like the choke cherry seeds are so small. I'm just, I'm not doing that. Nope, not too small. small. I've got to draw the line somewhere. I'm just wondering, have you ever tried, okay, so you're infusing it for three months. If somebody um, who's not quite as patient wanted to do something like that with a fruit, you know, I drink a, I I love to just 
whatever is in my house, I'll just muddle it in my bourbon and call it an old fashioned, but it seems oh, to yeah. every night, well, right? Could you do that? You, you could. Um, and for, for, frankly, in also in Santa Fe, um, apricots are a really popular street tree. And people put signs out in front of their houses when the fruit is falling saying, please take the fruit. Or they'll put a tarp under the tree with a sign that says free. And one of my favorite things to do, and I have four big bottles of it infusing right now, is I take the apricots and if I can't do it right away, I'll just stick them in the freezer and then fill like half gallon jars full with apricots and then pour the bourbon over it and let that infuse. And it's so good. You don't add any sugar it's fantastic. But if you wanted to do that, you could just muddle apricots and bourbon. Wonderful. One and crab apples. Crab apples and bourbon are a great comp. Sorry, I'm getting very excited. <laughs> a great combination. I am just and, so enjoying this. I mean, these are you, I, well, wait a minute. I have some crab apples. I have some you, bourbon. Hmm. I have who, a who doesn't everybody has crab apples? Yeah. You you could muddle those, but what I would recommend instead is juicing them and making a crab apple syrup. Okay. Um, because then you'll always have it at the ready, you know, right, right. and you put a little syrup. In fact, if you go to my website, there's a recipe for a crab apple bourbon, put bourbon in the search bar and it, sh- it should come out. I am there's so writing this down. Crab apple bourbon <laughs> cocktail. That's very good. Taking notes furiously. Here I go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're talking with Ellen Zakos about foraging in the backyard for food. And I just, I mean, I was all about the food, but now that we're talking about cocktails, I'm like, wait a minute, this, yeah. <laughs> this is very fascinating to me. Okay. So, yeah. for, but let's talk for a minute about, um, we've talked about your website. I wanted to also mention your podcast, Plant Rama. Am I saying that right? Yes. Plant Rama is a podcast that I do with my dear friend and colleague, CL Fornari. And it's, uh, it drops weekly on Thursdays. It's, usually between 20 and 30 minutes. And we talk about it as we, as we say, it's, uh, it's for anyone who has ever grown, eaten, or wondered about a plant. And it's, if it's about a plant, we will discuss it. We, we often have a foraging segment, um, but not all the time. This time of year, we're talking more about houseplants. In the spring, we might be talking about seed starting, but we have a couple of segments on each episode. We answer letters from, from people who write to us. And it's a really fun experience. I've been listening to it and I'm really enjoying it. One of the taglines that they use on their website for that or the you know platforms for that is science, art, dinner. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Plants are so, so cool. You know, there's so much that you can, you can eat them. You can make art with them. You can do medicine with them. You can just marvel at their evolutionary success. There's just, there's a lot to talk about. Oh, and I'm, I, de- I definitely recommend it to my listeners. I would say that as much as I'm vaguely interested in the science of plants, and I'm so lucky that I, you know, I'm, I'm a horticulturist, I know more than most people, but definitely mm-hmm. ornamentally motivated um, and pretty kind of sort of interested in science. You guys go deep into the science sometime, and yet I'm still having fun because it's, you make it still <laughs> accessible. And of course you're cracking jokes. And that's very important when you're talking about gardening, because if you're not having fun, right, you're not doing it right. What's the point of doing it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so look into that. You know, you said you're interested in food, but you've never thought about foraging. I'd be interested in knowing if there's anything in your backyard or your front yard that you wonder if it's edible or you've heard that maybe it's edible, but you're not sure. Or if there's something that you know is not edible. Is there anything that you are curious about in your yard? Like I like plants that do double duty. I like plants that are both beautiful and delicious and everything in my garden front and back 
is edible, but but if you were just walking past my house, you wouldn't know that. Oh, cool. So it's just so I'm wondering like that. Yeah, it it looks like just a regular ornamental garden, but but every plant I've chosen has an edible part to it, and I'm wondering if there might be some some hidden tasty treasure in your garden. The weeds that I pull out the most. Oh, okay, so actually, when I say weeds. Um, I started this thing on Instagram last year, which was a, a real bust. Um, it even bored me and it clearly bored everybody who was watching. It was called Weedy Wednesday. I think most people thought I was going to be talking about cannabis and I didn't get that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was trying to teach myself and others about weeds that I was starting to see in my winter garden. And so we're talking about chickweed and um, and now I can't even think of any others, but those early spring annual weeds. And Very I, I, and exactly yeah. that one. Yeah. And I felt like every third one that I stumbled upon, I'm like, okay, I'm going to put a half an hour in and learn about this thing and try to teach others. I didn't do it right. But I feel like every third one or maybe two out of three was very nutritious. I'm yeah. like, okay, but why, how would I, I, you know, these weeds are in my path. I, I'm pulling them up. I will, how would I diverge from like sticking it in that bucket that's going to my compost pile to like, mm-hmm. oh no, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, treasure these things and take them in and do, I don't know what with them. So yeah. <laughs> tell me a little bit about maybe those two. Well, chickweed is a good one. And I don't know um, where you garden. I mean, for me, when I was in New York and Pennsylvania, it was an early spring weed and then it would go dormant during the heat of summer. And then sometimes it would come back in the fall. Sometimes if we didn't have much snow, I could even harvest it in winter. And um, it's, it's a very tender, mild tasting weed. So if you were going to use it in say, add it to a quiche or an egg dish or a stir fry, because it's so tender, you add it at the last minute. It's not something like spinach that has to cook down. Even if you, if you were doing a stir fry and you turned off the heat and you added the chopped up chickweed and stirred it around, that would be enough heat for the chickweed. Okay. Um, and you can eat the leaves, the flowers and the stems of chickweed. Wow. Uh, usually especially if it's getting into the heat of summer, the last two to three inches are the most tender part. But if you're harvesting it in cool weather, it's all going to be good. And hoary bittercress sort of has the same sort of timing for us here. Yeah. Hairy bittercress is um, so small and it's a rosette that's so close to the ground. It, it can be very dirty. So yeah. that's one that you need to, you just twist the whole thing out of the ground and um, and you want to soak it in a bowl of water and swish it around to get all of that dirt off. Because when you're, especially if you're just starting out with wild foods, you want to have success right away. You do not want to chomp down on a mouthful of dirt because that would be discouraging and make you think you never wanted to try it again. <laughs> yes. Um, the hairy bittercress has a slightly spicier flavor to it. Um, also very good would be great chopped up and used in egg dishes or a stir fry. But unlike the chickweed, which has a very mild flavor, the hairy bittercress is a little bit spicier. It's a mustard and almost all of the mustards have a a more pungent, stronger flavor. Okay. I used to be so unknowledgeable about natives that I would pull up um, pokeweed all the time, even if it wasn't offending me. And of course I leave it now for the birds as I can. You have some recipes with that? I'm not sure if I have pokeweed recipes on my website, but I probably do. And if I don't, I should, because pokeweed is is so good. Um, And the season for that, most people think it has to be just when it first comes up in spring and it's like, you know, 12 to 18 inches tall and it hasn't started to branch. But the fact is that for things like pokeweed, Japanese knotweed, milkweed, as long as the tip of the plant 
is tender enough for you to snap off with your hand, it is tender enough to be good eating. It's when it's in the meristematic growth stage. So the meristem of the plant is the one that's where the cells are multiplying and it's really growing fast. And if so that if you come across, and this has happened to me, Japanese knotweed that's, you know, three or four feet tall and the top six to eight inches, I can just snap off with my hand. Great. It's edible. Same for pokeweed. So you you need to not restrict yourself just to the new growth, but get a feel along the stem for, for how tender and snappable it is. Okay. All right. And before we wind up, um, let's just take a minute to um, alleviate some of my fears about mushrooms. Okay. <laughs> so I, you know, I recently sold my gardening business and my crew members were all so wonderful. And they were like, oh no, we can this and that. And it's all so good. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Oh, and actually that's another thing. Like I didn't trust them. They're my 25 year old, you know, I'm not going to eat what they say to eat. I can trust you because you have dedicated decades to this, right? Because I'm not 25. That's right. I am not <laughs> way, Abby's really smart. Abby, if you were listening, I should trust you, but I don't. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, I have been doing this for a long time and I'm still alive. And part of that is because, you know, especially when it comes to mushrooms, I take precautions. I have passed up many a delicious edible mushroom because I wasn't 100% sure that I knew what it was. And I would get home and be like, oh, I should have harvested that one. But but it's better to do that than to eat the wrong mushroom because the wrong mushroom will kill you. It simply will. Um, So there are certain things that you learn to avoid. But the most important thing, whether it's mushrooms or plants, is never put anything in your mouth if you're not 100% sure what it is. If you say, I think that's that, not good enough. Don't eat it. No, especially when it comes to mushrooms. Upside, downside, a, a delicious taste, death. Yeah. yeah. You or got even a honey egg. It's a risk analysis. You got to do that for yourself. And, um, you know, and then if you learn two or three mushrooms every year, by the time you get to be my age, you're going to know a whole bunch of mushrooms. <laughs> That's awesome. Ellen, you have been very inspiring and I can't wait to, you know, explore more on your website by listening to your podcast, Plant Rama, and then just, you know, looking at photographs and making, always making sure, but I hope to get to that level where I am confident enough to put things in my mouth. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And if you, if you're on the fence about if something's safe or not, you you can email me a photo and I'll, I'll help you out. Oh, how kind. That is really <laughs> good. This is Into the Garden with Leslie on News Radio WINA. Brought to you by Dos Amigos Landscaping and Holistic Pest Solutions. Coming up, we're going to talk about how to play in your garden this week. Welcome back to Into the Garden with Leslie on News Radio WINA, sponsored by Dos Amigos Landscaping. I interviewed Ellen a few weeks ago, and after I talked to her, I had all these great aspirations to muddle some crab apples with my bourbon, and I still haven't done it. I mean, I've muddled plenty of things with my bourbon meantime, but not those crab apples. But what I have done, and I, it's still on my list to muddle crab apples, uh, what I have done is I have listened to her and C.L. Fornari, who is her podcast buddy, on their Plant Rama podcast. And it's a good one. What's better than plants and food? And they're both so smart, and they throw around a bit of science that always impresses me. I don't understand some of it, but I like it, and I am learning. And they also keep things very simple. It's a really good mix. All the links are in the show notes at lhgardens.com to Ellen's site, to her courses, which would be really important and interesting if you did want to get started in foraging, and to her podcast with C.L. Fornari, which again is called Plant Rama. Questions from listeners. I got a question from Marjorie about cutting back perennials. Very simple question. Marjorie asks, do I have to? 
And the simple answer is no. I just saw just yesterday an email newsletter on the subject, and I was amazed to see the information in that newsletter, which came from a gardening magazine that I had just subscribed to. I'm not going to name the magazine, and I'm not going to judge it because I haven't even read the magazine yet, so I I shouldn't judge it yet. But the information in the newsletter reminded me of something that I would have read like 15 years ago. It talked about which perennials you need to cut down because there might be fungal diseases harbored in the old leaves or because the plant might self-seed. Neither of those holds any water with me. I'm just one gardening gal, but I've been at it for a while. And I've never seen any evidence of trouble from leaving perennial material in situ just to hang out in the winter. Now, it may look disreputable, and if that bugs you, you absolutely take it away and take it off to the compost pile. But in terms of horticultural safety from objectionable pathogens, I just I just don't buy it. And you know I'm a little short on the science end, but I've just never seen any troubles that way. And neither would I take something away if it were to self-seed, because I'm always looking for more plants. So Marjorie, if you like the clean-cut look at the end of fall and over winter, go for it or leave it, and it could be a compost pile just right there and provide habitat for some nice bugs at the same time. Also, as a follow-up to last week's bulb episode with Tim Shipper from Color Blends, I promised I would talk about planting bulbs in containers. As with most things gardening, there are tons of ways to do this well, but only a couple ways to screw it up. And you lucky listeners, I have already done most of those. I've let them get too dry, I've let them get too wet. Anyway, here are some things that you could try. If you have some old, ugly plastic pots that you have just hanging around your garage, Just, you know, put about two, three inches of soil at the bottom of those and plant them up. When those emerge in spring, you can either remove them from the pots and put them into other containers, or you can sink them whole someplace where you have a hole in your garden, or if your container is big enough to sink the whole pot. But taking them out of the pot, roots and all, is a good thing to do before they start to flower because they'll get floppy when they start to flower. Or you could just take those bulbs and plant directly into good-looking containers that you might have pansies in or holiday decorations in right now. Either way, you need a bit of soil for the roots of the bulb, and then you can layer them up. Say your plastic pot was like six inches, two, three inches of soil, and then you could probably fit, I don't know, depending on how fat the bulbs, six or nine bulbs, because they can go almost up to the top. If you plant them more shallow than they would be in the earth, it's kind of okay. They might flop around a little bit, but they're going to be fine because remember, they are already packaged with all the goodness they need to be good, healthy plants. Now, the next year after that, they might not be so great unless you sink them in your real garden to let that foliage ripen off right after they have bloomed. But that's another story. Let's talk about what to do right now. If you're mixing up bulbs, like say snowdrops followed by hyacinth, then remember to put the bigger bulbs down low. You don't really need any fertilizer, but you could put in some if you wanted to. I never do. I just trust that they're already healthy. If you choose to plant your bulbs in a container that already sits out all winter, congratulations, you are finished. Well, be careful of critters. I mean, you might, I don't know, it just depends. If they're tulips, you might want to put something on top of them like pepper or netting or something. If you choose those ugly black pots that you're recycling, what to do with them? Well, you can store them in a cool, dark place. It must be quite cool, like 40s. Spring flowering bulbs need at least eight weeks of cool temperatures, like, you know, not not 60s, not 50s. So if your garage stays warm, then you might want to go someplace else. The soil should not be dusty dry, but evenly moist, and you're going to need to check on it and water these pots every few weeks over winter. Not often, like tell Siri to tell you to do it every three weeks, say. And you can just stick your finger in and judge whether they're dusty dry, which is the situation that you want to avoid. You could even just plunge the pots into the ground. 
How about your veg patch? That would be a great idea because there's probably not much growing there right now. But if you're growing tulips or other great food for squirrels, you'll need to cover them or net them somehow. I lost 200 tulip bulbs by not remembering that little detail one year. Couldn't figure out why those things weren't breaking dormancy. There was a good reason. They weren't there. They had become a meal for my garden pals. I'm going to include links to an article or two that I found that have better details on the subject if you want more information. But just so you know, it's really easy and it's kind of hard to mess up. So soil, don't let them get too dry, dark and cool. And then next spring, you could either wait until all the other bulbs are blooming or you could bring them in early and try to force them. That would be fun. So basically what that means is you're bringing them inside your house and they're saying to themselves, oh man, this is cool. It's like 65 or 70 degrees. It must be spring. So it's time for me to get going. And they will on your kitchen counter. Playlist of garden things. If you live around here, you are needing to water. We are still in a drought, dusty dry. I mean, we are officially in a drought. If you still haven't drained your hoses and turned off your taps, you can still do that very easily. I wish I weren't so industrious because I am, again, still carrying water all over the place with a bad ankle. Not much fun. Anyway, but you should keep an eye on the weather. If those nighttime temperatures go down into low 20s or upper teens, you might ruin a perfectly good hose or even bust a pipe. And that's expensive. There is still time to plant bulbs. I got a couple of thousand in the ground this week, which sounds impressive, but over a thousand of them were that mix of aranthus or winter aconite, galanthus or snowdrops, and keonodoxa or glory of the snow. That's that wonderful woodland combination that I like to put along the paths of my woods. It's yellow going to white and blue. And just to be clear, the reason that you shouldn't be too impressed is that those are tiny little bulbs and easy to plant and my foot is getting much better. Well, what to listen to? It's that time of year, it's time for Handel's Messiah. We can just leave it at that, but if you wanna go one part further, did you know that you can learn to sing the various parts of Handel's Messiah on YouTube? I think you can learn anything on YouTube, but this is a game changer. So you could have it on as background and sort of hum and you know dive into some of the words that you know, or you can study it and learn it and participate in it. UVA actually has a Messiah sing-along and you can go and join in. Honestly, I wonder if they're rethinking that with the Omicron thing. But anyway, I'm certainly not going this year. But if I study real hard and then perhaps have some sort of larynx transplant, maybe I can go and join in with my alto part one day. I'd like to thank NJ6B, I'm sure that's his or her real name, for leaving a review on Apple Podcast Reviews. He or she said, I love this podcast, solid information delivered in an approachable, fun way. Thank you for that. Oh, also, I've been emailing with Deborah Otjen, I think that's how you pronounce it, Otjen, this week, and the topic was Begonia Grandis and where to get it. Deborah lives in Tulsa, and she has lots of gardening friends, so I'm hopeful that she can get somebody to share it with her, because it's hard to find. Begonia Grandis was my plant of the week in episode 31, when Marianne Wilburn and I were talking about her article, In Defense of Plants Without Press. Begonia Grandis is late season in flowering, fragile in structure, Late to break dormancy, not easy to make look good in a nursery, but so easy to share. It's a perennial with pink flowers that blooms at the end of the season. And I hope Deborah can find some. Oh, side note, where Deborah lives in Tulsa is zone 7B, and she will probably get her bulbs in before Christmas because she sounds industrious. Oh, they're from Color Blends. How lovely. Um, but the word on the street for her gardening pals is that January 7th is the popular cutoff for uh, putting bulbs in the ground out there. Hey, a local note, the Blue Ridge Prism, which is the Partnership for Regional Invasive Species Management, 
It's a volunteer-driven organization dedicating to reducing the negative impact of non-native invasive plants in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, and it's having a free virtual webinar on Wednesday, January 5th. And the topic is going to be, no surprise, controlling invasive plants in winter. I'm going to put a link to how you can sign up on my blog on lhgardens.com, and also that link will be on the blog page at WINA. I know how busy you are. It's that time of year. So if you are listening to this podcast in real time, this close to Christmas, check yourself. Shouldn't you be doing something better right now? Are there cookies to make? Are there presents to wrap? No, I'm just kidding. I really appreciate your listening. And if you appreciate Into the Garden with Leslie, please spread the word. Leave a podcast review if you have an extra moment. Or put it out there on Facebook or Instagram if you have some gardening pals. Next week on Christmas Day, when I really hope you aren't listening, I'm going to have my sister on. But it's not the sister you may think. So be ready for that. I hope you give a listen to it at some stage. Maybe the sound of our voices will be more attractive than those of your relatives sometime that weekend. You never know. This was fun. If you have any questions or comments or corrections, please reach out. Again, at Instagram, I am Leslie Harris LH. At Facebook, I am Basically Absent. And on my website, I am lhgardens.com. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Dos Amigos Landscaping. I named this show Into the Garden with Leslie because I am really into my garden in this incredibly weirdly warm December, slowly with my bad foot, but it's healing. I want to get you into yours. I'll see you next week. Bye.